0: Welcome to the American Vandal, from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. There are many humorous things in the world, Mark Twain wrote. Among them, the white man's notion that he is less savage than the other savages. A few years after these words, Twain privately disparaged the atrocities of the Second Boer War, during which... Tens of thousands of Africans would die in prison camps established by the British, before publicly mounting his decade-long campaign against European colonialism and American imperialism. Twain arrived at his critiques of colonization and white supremacy, which underwrote it rather late in life. But his portrayal of the violent, deceitful progress of Western civilization in works like To the Person Sitting in Darkness, King Leopold's Soliloquy, The Secret History of Oedipus World Empire and The Stupendous Procession is broadly compatible with the grand narrative of Raoul Peck's new HBO documentary series, Exterminate All the Brutes. Twain's anti-imperialist writings are among his most formally experimental and the same can be said of Peck's documentary, the ambitions of what they narrate matched by unconventional choices about how to narrate. To discuss this film, I am joined by three scholars whose diverse research profiles facilitate a conversation that ranges much as Peck's film does. Sherry Marie Harrison is Associate Professor of English at University of Missouri. Her specializations include Caribbean literature, mass culture of the African diaspora, and transnational iterations of the Gothic. You may remember her from our discussion of the HBO series Lovecraft Country in the context of her essay, New Black Gothic, last season. We are joined this time by her partner, Andrew Hobarek, who is the Catherine Payne Middlebush Professor of English and Chair of the School of Languages, Literatures, and Cultures at University of Missouri. His scholarship focuses on post-45 U.S. popular culture and Cold War politics, including notable works on graphic novels, prestige television, and hip-hop. Finally, we are joined by Ignacio Sanchez Prado, who is the Jarvis Thurston and Mona Van Professor of the Humanities at Washington University in St. Louis. Professor Prado's extensive re- record of research includes works on Latin American intellectual history, neoliberal culture, world literary theory, food studies, and global cinema. You can find links to some of these scholars' published works, as well as an extensive bibliography of materials discussed in this episode by visiting marktwaynstudies.com backslash exterminate. The first question I asked them was based upon the statement of intent which Raoul Peck released alongside Exterminate All the Brutes. And so our episode begins with a recording of that statement read by Peck himself.
1: After my film I Am Not Your Negro, finding a project that would make as much sense to me was challenging. James Baldwin's words had basically firebombed every known field of bigotry I knew, and had annihilated any attempt at deniability of the racist monster that lurks in corners of our societies. But despite the film's success, I found out that there were still vast territories of resistance, innocent stubbornness, and sheer ignorance laying around. And I felt that I had to tackle this. I had to address the even bigger picture. I had to find the foundation of it all and deconstruct it from the ground up. When I first read Exterminate All the Brutes, written by Sven Linquist, the ideas and connections I had begun to thread were suddenly laid bare in front of me. The entire story I was looking for was on display. From Africa to America, from slavery to Europe, from Germany to the Holocaust, all the way to where it all started. But to talk about America, I had to address the origin story, the story of the Native American genocide. That's when I found Roxanne Dombard Artists' book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, an important part of the puzzle. Then I found the third book, Michel Rolf Thruyot's Silencing the Past, which would bring me back to my own story with Haiti, a country forcefully overlooked in its role in changing Western world history. So then, I was now ready to deploy the story from its beginning. 600 years of history in one single film. But because this film also is about cinema, I wanted to push the boundaries of conventional documentary filmmaking and find the freedom to tell this story by any means necessary. Exterminates all the brutes, weaves together archival footage, documentary footage, dynamic animation, voiceover, and scripted fictional scenes. It creates a new narrative that can carry the nuanced and emotional levels of the subject matter and crack the core story from the inside out. As writers, creators, filmmakers, We have no choice than to reflect our societies and provide knowledge and challenges in addition to mere entertainment. And as artists, we need to break the limits of our art. This is what this film specifically and concurrently set out to achieve a kind of an
0: amazing claim. Uh And does does the film live up to it? What does it even mean to try to crack the core of a story from the inside out?
2: You know, one of the things that really interests me about the documentary is the way it functions on so many levels. And it's a perfectly entertaining documentary, but also generically is drawing on, for instance, just the lecture (laughs) <laughs> you know it really it does function as a kind of four hour lecture on uh history and on literary criticism his engagement with film i think is a bit more intimate as the statement of intent suggests but you know even in the first episode you can see how he's sort of doing his take on Werner Herzog long before you see the clip from Aguirre you know he's sort of putting himself in a history of Holocaust documentary making you know which he you know from his first film had already been participating in but here kind of like I mean for me you know far and away like the most stunning moment in the whole series remains Eva Brown's home movies set to a bunny whaler soundtrack like that's the most kind of like shocking cinematic moment for me in part because I just uh, I'm at a loss for what to do with it like it, It gets, you know, a thing I like, obviously, is when a work of art can get past my ability to kind of figure out what it's doing. And that moment does.
3: I mean, in in terms of cinema, I think that there is a genealogy of Global South documentary, or what was called the third cinema back in the day that is activated here. Mm -hmm. Um, It's interesting because the week before I, I watched this, I was teaching Fernando Solanas and Octavio Getinos The Hour of the Furnaces. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with it, but it is the core film of Third Cinema. It is a radical documentary from, four hours long, from the 1960s, and it's accompanied by the founding manifesto of the Third Cinema. And it's the same idea, right? It is a, a history of Argentina that is narrated in three parts. It's the same length almost. And it has the same kind of use of rapid code code editing, a sort of yarring and distancing technique, very much grounded in the 1960s and different from the techniques that Peck uses, but it is certainly a a model here. I think that the the difficulty in reading a film like this uh, for the audience that would be in the HBO ecosystem (laughs) is that... He's definitely appealing to the kind of global South or third world film traditions that most of these audience members eh, wouldn't know. And it's a very interesting experience because as someone who who teaches this material, this is not a particularly jarring or or formally original documentary for me. But if you were to see it without that core of references, it would certainly have a bigger effect. I think that he gets away with it precisely because he's putting that kind of technique and that kind of tradition in a media ecosystem that is not really designed around that tradition. But this idea, for, for example, that Andy was mentioning of the Eva Brown and the music, that is something that is in the Hour of the Furnaces. You see the images of the Argentine bourgeoisie with this music in the background. Another example is the documentarian Santiago Alvarez from Cuba in the 1960s, and he used sort of the intersection of imagery with, a, with an estranging use of well-known music as a way to, to, to challenge the audience. So all of the sensorial nature of the, of the documentary is very familiar to me because I know the Latin American tradition and Peck clearly citing a lot of the, that material in his style.
4: I mean, one of the big questions that I wanted to ask um, here more than even like coming to to sort of talk about anything that I came away from the film understanding is the 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 home videos. The home videos are super interesting, and and the way that they're they're juxtaposed against all kinds of different media landscapes. There is you know the the, the collaging in of 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 different films, and there's the animation that helps us think about scale. And I I, I wondered what we were thinking about in terms of how. do the family videos rest here, especially in terms of the cosmopolitanism that Mm -hmm. they're suggesting? Like a lot of them are in Berlin or a lot of them are from family travel in Europe as well. And so I wondered how we thought about those um, as as a part of this kind of um, cinematographical landscape.
3: So I may take that one too, sorry, because it also goes (laughs) to the Latin American documentary, but um, there's a documentary that came out about three years ago or four called In the Intense Now by a Brazilian mm-hmm. documentarian called Joao Moreira Sales
4: I'm taking notes, Nacho.
3: And and, <laughs> and the, in the intense now is a, a documentary on May '68. But one of the interesting things is that one of the materials that this director has who is a major Brazilian filmmaker, is the home videos that his mother took in a delegation trip that she did to China under mm-hmm. <clears throat> on the, on Mao. And the use of the home video was very similar in that film, even down to the point that is more or less the same thing, right? Which is the the person that is in the, in the site as a consequence of a cosmopolitan diplomatic delegation in the model of the 60s of the United Nations and UNESCO. Peck is really not working on, on the American documentary tradition mm-hmm. as far as I noticed. He's really mm-hmm. conversational with with third cinema and the legacies of third cinema. And I would even say that in the intense now, along with Peck's documentaries, are probably the biggest representations of third cinema documentary in contemporary film worldwide. Mm -hmm. They are really poking at that archive rather than, you know, the kind of work that is being done in the US by people like Carol Morris or other documentarians
4: it's interesting like especially from um from the statement that matt opened up with to, to think about looking back at this particular archive as or this particular film making tradition as a liberatory one as one that he thinks about that mm-hmm. is, is granting us access to this freedom to tell the story by any means necessary and you know again scale is a thing that's super interesting about this documentary for me and the way that formally this is the filmmaking tradition that the third cinema is where he He's locating this freedom, this ability to imagine in ways that are expansive and that that give us pause. Like again, you know, those of us who aren't familiar with this longer tradition is we're jarred or we're just like, what am I supposed to do with this, right? Um, and,
3: and indeed, the the name of the of the group of Solana Sangetino
4: mm-hmm. was
3: Grupo Cine Liberación.
4: Mm. So
3: liberation, liberationism is at the core of this film practice.
2: And let me ask you a kind of follow-up question Nacho about the the film soundtrack things that you're talking about so sort of in the Argentinian and Cuban examples. It's tonally jarring, but mm-hmm. is it in each case Latin American music that's playing?
3: No, not necessarily. Like now, for example, it's a documentary on the civil rights movement of the United States and the music is uh, is African American music okay um so so they are cosmopolitan traditions too they're not necessarily bound only to latin america
2: i agree like it's it's more formally jarring i think if you you're not familiar with that sort of use the sort of the radical estrangement you get with you know eva brown's home movies and the bunny whaler song Mm-hmm. There's something obviously there going on, you know, like Ralph Peck is showing us his family's home movies, but then also, you know, like Eva Brown is taking home movies and Adolf Hitler is kissing a dog and engineering genocide. But then, you know, the Bunny Whaler song, like it's a kind of interesting song because it's a kind of remake of a 1963 song that went nowhere by, I think, an African American group called the El Tempos. Bunny Whaler remakes it as a kind of back to Africa. Mm-hmm. The idea there's a land across the sea where we will have happy lives. But then, you know, sort of like placed in the context of Adolf Hitler, it immediately becomes about empire and about making the point like Hitler's genocide is not a kind of located one, but as the film keeps trying to inform you all along, it's just, it's a continuation and a kind of technological perfection of the history of empire more generally. I love the moment because it's doing so much work and it's such a radically estranging move in some ways to think about a Jamaican reggae artist thinking about Africa and then you know Hitler thinking about Africa in some very different way.
0: This question that Sherry raised about the home movies, and, and I really wanted to sort of work through the, the multiple modes that Peck is is integrating. It, It relates to something that came to me over and over again. Uh, Two scholars I know, both of you, all of you, are familiar with, Anna Kornblum and uh, Merve Mm Imré, have been doing work on the personal essay recently and the pervasion of autobiographical Mm -hmm. writing Mm -hmm. into seemingly every medium and genre, (laughs) uh, arguing that the personal narrative is the grammar of gig work, the tripology of casualized labor the preferred form of the financialized self. Mm -hmm. And Mervé has even described the personal essay as a form that colonizes other genres. And I, I've been engaging with their work really, really recently. And so I couldn't help, but thinking when Peck inserts himself right as the narrator, inserts his own home movies into the arc, Is that a case of the sort of personal narrative infecting everything? And maybe Nacho's point about the different cinematic tradition that he's working in can speak to this as well. Why is that different? Why doesn't it feel as self-satisfied, as narcissistic when Raoul Peck does it as it does when, say, Michael Moore does it?
4: One of the things that's really interesting to me about, about the um, the documentary as a Caribbeanist is how it seeks to situate a, a Haitian cosmopolitan imagination, mm-hmm. right? And a cosmopolitan Haitian imagination that is rooted in the 19th century revolution, right? Like it's an attempt to shift our understanding of modernity too in, in ways that interestingly locate it in this context of Haiti like I'm trying to remember the line and it was very striking to me it really was about how the other revolutions at the turn of of the century became what was definitive about revolution essentially stealing or it's not necessarily about the credit to Haiti but you know just 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 detracting from that and I think there's something about the way in which Peck situates literally situates himself in this longer genealogy as both Haitian and as somebody who is imagining what genocide in this kind of continuum looks like, you know, shifting the way that we think about modernity from the perspective of the Haitian revolution in ways that are not just about just like you know, a slave rebellion, but also one that has a far more cosmopolitan way of of, of accessing, thinking through that. Well, and I think to
2: paraphrase, I mean, the line you're thinking of is it's, you know, it's something like the Haitian revolution um, of the three revolutions that we associate with the age of revolution Mm -hmm. was the only one that was actually fully revolutionary. Mm It was the only one that kind of like lived up to the promise of revolution, unlike the American or the French. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah that moment stuck with me as well, in part because maybe, you know, Andy mentioned his favorite scene in the film was the the Bunny Whaler soundtrack for the Eva Brown movies. I think mine might be the... Natives murdering the conquistadors to the soundtrack of Haitian fight song, yeah. and I yeah. feel like that song that that scene is a kind of performance of this this claim, right? That the Haitian Revolution is the one we should remember, like it's the one that actually came the closest to accomplishing. Accomplishing the ideal of the age of revolution.
4: Yeah, I mean, Marlena Dot has been talking about this for her entire career, right? Like, this is mm-hmm. this is this is how we want to think through this, and and what what Peck does in with with all of these visuals, right? It, it shifts, it decenters, it completely kind of moves all of our cognitive and experiential lenses towards that kind of imagining from that particular location.
2: I mean, to go back to the question of the self-insertion, right, and the way in which the kind of the memoiristic feel doesn't kind of have the sort of self-indulgence that we associate with mm-hmm. the keynote genres of late capitalism, lyric poetry, and the memoir, and autofiction. When I think about that, I think about it in terms of, in some ways, Lost Children Archives, which I'm I'm teaching now. Okay. You know, and there, there's there's a kind of similar, I think, okay. attempt to juxtapose the deeply personal with the, the global historical right mm-hmm. and it's doing something similar i think insofar as you know like in that book very specifically you know as as you're told repeatedly the problem is the problem of the archive and you know here is the material that you have or the material you don't have and how do you make order out of it and so Louis Sully is really kind of like working through that problem in a way that i think Peck is as well in the final episode you know where he says you know the problem is not that we don't know any of this right it's not a problem mm-hmm. of knowledge It's a problem of how you organize the knowledge. And so, so much of the generic fluidity of the documentary to me feels like attempts to kind of like produce narratives in some ways like deeply comforting or gratifying to uh, an academic sensibility who's worked in this field, right? That like a lot of these narratives, if you're an academic, are deeply familiar, right? And so like, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, like the Haitian revolution was the good revolution, that's true, we know that. Like, there's been a lot of scholarship about that. Andrew Jackson was not a populist. He was a genocidaire. Mm-hmm. True, this is a narrative we have. But also I think what's deeply compelling is the way that like, he keeps trying out these narratives and he keeps giving you like, different ways to kind of make sense of the archival material you have. And so in some sense, I think that's also you know, happening with home movies. It's like, I have this collection of moments from my life and my family's life, but like, what does it add up to? I
3: mean, I think that there's a couple of things to distinguish here. I don't know that the narration of the self is the same as the essay. I think that's a completion that is very specific to the cultural anglosphere of the present. Uh, The essay, uh, which is a tradition that dates back to centuries, is, is a personal perspective, but it's not always a narration of the self. In American critical traditions, there has been a conflation between the memoir and the essay under the category of non-fiction that is not really operational outside of the English language. I, I think that we have to be wary about the way we position Peck uh, in contemporary culture. Because the reason why he can't make this documentary is precisely because he's not American. He's, and he's mm-hmm. not African-American. Mm-hmm. Sherry and Andy know the, that, that I like to throw this word a lot, but a, a lot of the media Uh, That we consume here in the United States is very provincial Mm -hmm. because it really considers the United States, the cultural production of the United States, to be both paradigmatic and and self sufficient. There are discussions of of Blackness, for example, that are always about African American Blackness, but not about global Blackness, right? right? For me, the interesting thing of having this in such an American medium as HBO is precisely that it is a documentary that very steadfastly refuses to accept the provincial perspective of American history. But even the provincial perspective of American histories of resistance, he's connecting the Spanish empire, he's connecting the Haitian revolution, right? Mm -hmm. And he is talking about the oppression of African Americans and Native Americans, but he's not doing it as a specifically American phenomenon but he's really talking about the global flows that have always defined Mm -hmm. the colonial enterprise and the United States, even if it's focused in some occasions, is just one of the spaces of a global colonial enterprise. So that's a very important Mm -hmm. component of this. And I think that I've been thinking about it because I'm writing about a film called Until the End of the World by Bim Benders, which is a very different film. But what is interesting is that there was a tradition of world cinema until very recently that really represented the world and was not bound to the representation of the national. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes in American cultural production, because the U.S. has such a strong geopolitical ideology, even the stuff that represents the world, like the MCU, it does not present the world that Lashbury presents it from the narrow lens of American geopolitical thinking. This is interesting because this is a a history of the world that is really seen from the perspective of the colonized. Mm -hmm. And it is not the kind of reflection that you often see in first world media. I wouldn't even just say the US, but also you could say France, Britain, right? Mm -hmm. The, The other thing that I'm gonna say about the essay is there is a tradition called the essay film that traces back to the work of people like Joris Ivens and Luis Buñuel in the in the 30s and you know things like Las Hurdes or or something like that and it really reaches its peak in the seven in the 60s that Laura de los Hornos is one of them but you know the work that Jean-Luc Godard did with Goran in the Sigaberto group in you know, things like The Wind of the East or or the films of Agnes Barda, like she did Salule Cuban, which is an essay film about the Cuban Revolution. All of this is either activated here or, or it's something that is, be, or this belongs to more or less the same genealogy. Mm-hmm. And that kind of essay, even if this, the filming subject locates him or herself in the story, in the global story, is not the same kind of thing that the fully self referential yeah. narration that Merve and Anna. Are talking about, mm-hmm. which is more of a bourgeois neoliberal subject, sort of centering him here themselves in in a in a very narrow a uh, world. It's not the same to center yourself in Brooklyn than to center yourself in the history of colonialism, right?
2: And I think right. that's a critical difference. Can I throw out here because I'm deeply curious about Peck's relationship to European practitioners of of this global cinema? Ponte Corvo and Herzog. Mm -hmm. Um, Sherry and I recently rewatched Burn. I know you've watched that recently, Mm -hmm. Nacho. And um, deeply unsatisfying and offensive. As much as I, you know, I love the Battle of (laughs) Algiers. I was
4: mad at the end of Burn, man. Burn really screws up, Um, uh, Mm -hmm. you know.
2: And and in some ways, like like Herzog, for all his kind of like uh, existential bluster, like... He actually feels to me like he's doing something more interesting with his Peruvian films, you know, than like Ponte Corvo, who should have the good politics, does Mm -hmm. with Bern. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious, Nacho, on your take on Peck's specific relationship, maybe to those two previous filmmakers.
3: There's an interesting focus on Herzog. One of my former professors, Joshua Lund, who's now at Notre Dame, he has a a book on Werner Herzog that is very centered on his Latin American films.
4: I haven't. Uh, is that the one that you just got me, Andy?
3: Yeah, and, um, <laughs> Andy just got. I it. mean, I actually remember this because I actually took a class with Joshua on, on Herzog and Fitzcarraldo and Klaus Kinski mm-hmm. as part of a larger seminar of race in Latin America. But I mean, that is the kind of thing where, when if, even if you look recent work by Herzog, like Nomadland, the film about Bruce Chadwin. I think there is a very, not always successful but very important space of self-reflection about his location as a, as a filmmaker in terms of the histories of colonialism that he's narrating in a way that Peck is doing too, right? It is very important that he tells us that he was part of this global effort of the colonization of the Congo, uh, which is reflected in the home films. Just like in the example that I was putting before, Joe Moreira Sales locates his mm-hmm. own political radicalism in the intersection between Maoism, as even in representing his own mother, and May 68, which is sort of a, the political experience of the left in Latin America. Herzog is an interesting moment in cinema that we don't think about enough, because the rise of Sundance as a centralizer of independent, global independent film and of CGI as a technology of the blockbuster, and then later Netflix as a hollow out of film finance. Mm-hmm. We have lost the, the ability of telling alternative histories of the world in cinema, in the way that it was done in the cinema between the 60s and the 80s, where you had an, a, both political ideology and an economic means sufficient for you to be able to tackle these stories. I, I think that the ideology has watered down, right? But also the economic abilities and as a global non-US based filmmaker to come and tell these stories is very is, is, is very hollowed out. And in a way, Raul Peck is interesting in this regard because he functions with American financing in particular in this film. And at the same time, he shoots like a Global South filmmaker. Mm-hmm. You can imagine that this is the kind of film if St. Ben has had been hired by HBO, or if (laughs) you know uh, that that
4: look like
3: this is one of the outcomes that you would get, right? And and indeed one of the problems of the 60s, as you are mentioning, is that it was people like Ponte Corvo uh, doing this kind of work because global cinema was not yet global. The the cinemas of decolonization were just emerging and did not have the same level of resources and and visibility that, that we could afford them now. Uh, But we have to see, right? The the democratization of streaming is very peculiar because it hollows out the economics, but it also decenters distribution. So I think that you wouldn't be able to think of uh, this film without that paradox.
0: That's one of the things I wanted to ask about is what does the existence of this film mean for HBO? It seems to me that amongst contemporary american media companies hbo maybe aside from disney has maintained the most sort of coherent corporate identity and authorship right that they're their shows, their their productions seem to always fit within a politics, uh, an aesthetic, right? And for them to make this film, I think, is a kind of an extraordinary departure maybe for HBO or maybe part of a larger evolution within HBO. And so that's one of the things I wanted to think about is why the distribution through HBO Max, I think, is really important. And and it speaks also to the you know, what Andy said earlier, right, that a lot of these arguments, may be familiar to an audience of academics, but to the vast majority of the HBO Max subscriber base, they are not necessarily.
2: Just to kind of like, to set this up, though, is, you know, like, one of the key things about HBO's corporate identity, which distinguishes it from from Netflix or Disney, right? It's, you know, not to be praised, but like fully capitalist understanding of the existence of the African American or the larger global black audience, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah,
4: it's the democratization of streaming, like Nacho said, it's understanding that the audience that's watching this platform the audience that's tuned into this platform isn't necessarily only the audience that used to watch it on cable TV anymore like in the midst of a global pandemic when everyone globally not everyone but like a specific set of people who can afford the internet service and the subscription costs to it like you know the audience is is much larger and the audience being much larger kind of requires something more than some of the 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 parochial fair that has that has been on offer Mm -hmm. um, up until now right
2: you know so I think it's it's you know it's something to do with kind of like HBO kind of like really carving out this niche of prestige black programming like insecure like I may destroy you I mean like as I'm fond of joking like Game of Thrones which you know did become a kind of like a a major subject of conversation on Black Twitter, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So what's interesting there, and in terms of Matt's question, and I I just kind of want to pose this, HBO is Warner Brothers, it's a corporate monolith, and so you're wary of the politics there, you know, and so for instance, like HBO ruined Fred Hampton. But what's kind of like fascinating about this documentary, and I think it has a little bit to do with, you know, what Nacho is talking about in terms of the signature of Peck as a filmmaker is that this one gets through without kind of having too much of its politics ruined or diluted. And, you know, I think it also has something to do with documentary Mm -hmm. as a form as opposed to fictional storytelling.
3: I mean, I, I think that there's a discovery of Netflix and now HBO is moving into this direction, although they had a version yeah. of this as a pay service. You don't need um, individual ratings, right? So you don't need each individual product that you have in your catalog to be profitable on its own. You need the expansion, the constant expansion of the subscriber base. And you know, the problem of, in part is that these are colonizing medium insofar as uh, Netflix has developed the ability of absorb talent from around the world and keep mm-hmm. it core in the US and at the same time get a global subscriber base and HBO Max is likely moving in that direction with some advantages because as we have seen they have taken advantage of the pandemic to use their their, their cinematic franchises as part of the lure of subscribers but you know we're getting to the model where where catalog and subscription is going to be the, the, the way of the world and not the, the profitability of the individual show or or film by rating or both mm-hmm. of this. Um, mm-hmm. I mean it's a long standing process. But I think that the 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 significant thing about this is that it is an extractivist model. Um, in the sense that these are corporate behemoths that are doing this for profit. That's not out of that is not a, that is not at all a, even a controversial statement. But the scope of media that they need to produce is not producible in a highly precarized Hollywood model that has basically shot itself in the foot because the prevalence of tent poles has really hollowed hollowed out the middle of the production, which is where a lot of the prestige production is. I mean, if you have a year, even with the pandemic, where your likely Oscar winner is something like Minari or Nomadland, I mean, it's because the kind of middle budget prestige film is just not being done Mm -hmm. at at enough level even to fill out the Oscars. So it has to be given to foreign films as it it happened with Parasite, right? Or it has to be given to like micro productions as is the case this year. Because the US does, does not have the ability to produce that you can go and grab global filmmakers and global television industries that are doing this kind of work and then you can do it on the cheap because producing in Mexico or in Africa or in other places is, is is cheaper than producing in the US. At the same time, the second extraction that is happening, which is the one that is more uh, on Peck, is that there is now a competition to look at what's emerging in independent American circuit and grab it very quickly. Mm-hmm. So you have Chloe Shao, is going to move from, from microfilms to to the Oscar. To the Marvel to, to Marvel, right? Or now, Raul Peck. Maybe I don't hope he doesn't direct a superhero movie next. <laughs> uh, like, I, I'm I, there's, there's, a, there's a fearful part of me that, that thinks that he's gonna direct like the next Flash film or something like that. But you know, Ra- Raul Peck uh, is coming from a very peculiar a form of, form of the production and a peculiar form of filmmaking that, as I said, looks more like a Global South film trajectory and is mm-hmm. being brought into the corporate form. We should not keep in mind that even though there's a radical component in the ideology of works like this, the production model is a production of, is a model of appropriation and extraction of the cultural resources of global film industries and independent film industries into larger and larger and larger corporate overlords that need to continue growing in order to
2: remain viable. Mm -hmm. I mean, an extractivist is a good way to, I think, describe the economics here. There was an interesting article in Post 45 Contemporaries recently about Netflix and transnationalization of nollywood um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know and it's it's right like netflix just needs content like endless streams of content and so nollywood is a film industry that produces content bollywood is a film industry that produces content and so now suddenly people in the u.s have access to kind of like bollywood and nollywood catalogs that they just did not have The, you know the economics is is you know driven by not a kind of archival impulse on the part of the curators, but, you know, but really just by like, we need to kind of keep throwing things into the machinery.
0: Yeah. You've you've made me a little bit worried here because what, I mean, (laughs) one of the things that I like about exterminate all the Brutes is that it approaches this grand narrative with a less transparently Marxist frame right, than maybe other critical examinations of colonialism. And yet, the suppression of the economic motive in Exterminate All the Brutes may unfortunately fit very well with the HBO extraction model that Nacho described, right? Mm-hmm. That, that making this about race about the means of cultural conquest as opposed to economic extraction may fit well within Netflix's own or, or HBO's own desire to not reveal their own extractive
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a kind of similar, you know, I think biopolitics at work here as we were watching. I think Sherry at one point, you know, said, oh, like, this is a kind of Afro-pessimistic narrative, right? And so it, it gets things about settler colonialism very right. But the fact that capitalism never shows up, I think, is like the big blind spot. The danger there, right, is so in the scene where um, Josh Hartnett plays uh, Congolese rubber baron, it's the danger that's always there where you think, oh, you know, people had slavery because they like to chop off people's hands, not because it was very, very profitable.
4: I feel like, you know, the the presence of commodities throughout like the thing that's actually Mm -hmm. that Josh Hartnett shows up for in each iteration right so rubber and um cotton and land weapons land all of the I mean the commodities are there and so like it 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 may not necessarily be as explicit but I I I feel like seeing them invoke those things that's 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 what I wanted to put in nacho before I
3: don't know that there's an absence of capitalism I mean, it is doing something important, which is that it's giving you a big picture narrative, but it it, it stops halfway. Mm. The halfway is important because there's a lot of blind spots, not in the film, but in the general understanding of this phenomenon, even among academics and authors and knowledgeable people. Well, the lack of making these connections really imposes limits on our politics and the way in which we immobilized according to this kind of thing. Especially I could say that this is a documentary that claims the liberation narrative. Like one thing that I have been filming all year is the the new Isabel Wilkerson book, the cast. Listen, that might be for a different listen, podcast. But the one the one detail <laughs> that I'm filming the most about is that it's a book called Cast. And there's something called El Sistema de Castas in Spanish colonialism that was very paradigmatic in the foundation of race worldwide and she writes a book about caste and she doesn't even mention that
4: well it, you know it goes back to centering um thinking about global history solely exactly, from an american exactly. perspective yeah, right. So right. She, right. she
3: goes to cast in india but not to cast in the colonial empire in the spanish no. empire as a, as a significant moment and i think that for instance there could be more spanish colonialism here for sure uh, there could be some contemporary issues that might be more touchy like Palestine it would have been an interesting thing to see in here, right? Mm-hmm. but at, and you know another one of those and that's something that I think every time I go to Europe you go to I, I'm gonna say something mean about the Netherlands but you know it's not that that, that I don't like them but you know you go to Amsterdam or to or to Le De Hague, and you see these uh, cities and you wonder how a, a, a country that it was essentially a rural country, produce that, and then, it's, of course, it's the banking system of the of the colonial enterprise, right? And the and the East India Company, and so on. So I, I think that there are some elements of the full picture that would still be open for inclusion. You could consider that there could be a season two of this that goes into some of those uh, aspects, because I, I do think that it's still too centered in the US. well
2: i mean you know the netherlands was part of the spanish empire too
3: of course right but i mean they i i could foresee that there's a second documentary here to be made where they where you center on europe and on countries that we identify as progressive today progressive yeah and and have all of these stories and you know sometimes the one, one that i use in my class a lot is you can center on Canada. And see how this supposedly progressive liberal society, which is not really an accurate statement either, but one that has this reputation, is built on on some of the most horrific mining practices around the world, right? So all of those things are potential expansions. But I think that the virtue of the documentary is that even though it doesn't go all the way, it makes the it makes all the way thinkable in a in a media yeah. space where it wouldn't have it would have been unthinkable before this.
2: And it's not absent, right? Like you have the kind of opening in Sweden, but there it feels like it's, it's precisely like there I feel like the economic is evacuated because it's, oh, you know, there is racism in Sweden, but not talking about like the economic factors that might drive or continue to drive that. I mean, it's true, like the, the kind of Palestinian question is, you know, it's, as we know, always a limit case of how far politics can go. But, you know, striking in a film that's like about settler colonialism in its absence. Yeah. hmm
4: Coming back to thinking about this as 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 a corporate commodity too, like you know, what are we going to get in the after stories about what got left on the cutting room floor, and how, in as much as it opens a lot of spaces for imagining how colonization functioned in 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 ways that we didn't necessarily think through in terms of scale
2: before, what doesn't make the documentary right? Mm-hmm. Can I throw this out there? I don't have a kind of like a, an answer to this question, but it is a question that I'm curious about, and it's a question that's about the relationship between Kind of the personal and the political very much, the curious status of Peck's critique of Catholicism in this film. Does anybody have any thoughts about that?
4: I'm like I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it goes back to to this business of Spanish Empire as well. There's 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 something about how Catholicism came with that and is imprinted on the entire colonial enterprise in 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 really profound ways. You know, the moment when he's like in grade school and the priest beats him because of some disagreement, beats him and the other boy mm-hmm. and it completely shatters his his vision of the world in terms of generosity and, you know, human kindness. The scene where the religious man who may or may not have been Catholic finds the evil in himself to kick the man that's already down. There is something about the imbrication of religion and capital and colonization here that is embodied around Catholicism that you know, it's not as explicitly stated and represented mm-hmm. to us in as as other things are, but very much a part of the narrative landscape that this film wants us to imagine. And you know, for those of us who are Catholics in the audience, to be just like you know, to feel as an indictment, like there are a lot of things that this film invites us to feel as an indictment against us personally. And I think that's that's definitely one of those things that you know situates people inside of a history of genocide in ways that they probably have never imagined themselves before
3: well and i mean the the other key element is the bartolomé de las casas right who embodies very Absolutely. well this paradox yes 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 he's, yes he's the founder he's one of the founders of what we now call human rights upon mm-hmm. the defense of the humanity of, of indigenous peoples but at the same time this was premised on the inhumanity yeah, of black people right and now People and people, African slaves and that's how the histories between African and indigenous people as colonists. So this diversion are very dramatic. You know in in, in the Latin American tradition, the Catholicism is complex because one of the renewals, which was the theology of liberation, it really put a big asterisk on the history of, of the church as a colonial institution and it made it more para, I don't know that it changes, but it made it more paradoxical, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another HBO documentary that I don't know if it's in your radars. It's called The Art of Political Murder. And it is the adaptation of a non-fiction book by the Guatemalan writer Francisco Goldman about the murder of the Cardinal Gerardi, who was the, the, the person that came out with the report of the Catholic Church on the Guatemalan genocide. And, and it's tied other documentaries that have come out recently and even fiction films about Guatemala's search for justice. But um, you can say a representation of the Catholic Church that is different there because they, they, mm-hmm. this, this very powerful church, member of the church hierarchy is really heading one of the most important human rights projects in the continent. You will always find these contradictions in this. And I, yeah, and I think that Peggy is starting through the contradiction right between the, the, mm-hmm. the po- political potential of the faith versus the actions of the institution
4: yeah yeah like you know as you were talking nacho I thought about um white elephant for example yeah. that film it's so much not necessarily about the religious morality that 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 the church is is known for and that kind of fuels this 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 particular you know colonial enterprise but a far more complicated understanding of what faith is can probably access but you know there's something about it's 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 the institution of the church too that comes out as the bad guys you have these priests who are martyrs working in the community and trying to sort of broker security and peace but also you know them being stopped by their cardinals in these really interesting ways right I feel like Latin American cinema really has a far more complicated sense of faith and faith surrounding the Catholic mm-hmm. church you know it's not just church Good church, bad, but you know, like a complex rendering of what it means to grapple with with an institution that's implicated with with genocide.
2: And, and I just want to say, like, I, I mean, like bringing up Pablo Tropero is is a perfect counterexample, I think, um, in White Elephant, mm-hmm. um, and it's it kind of like it helps illuminate a little bit again of this kind of like blind spot of pecs, because you know, in White Elephant, like the church tries to put a lid on things because it's investing in real estate. Um, mm-hmm.
0: As Sherry was describing the moments of Catholic guilt in Exterminate All the Brutes, it struck me that oftentimes that critique is buried in the fictionalized reenactment portions or I don't even want to call them reenactments because sometimes they have a reenactment aspect to them but they mm-hmm. really are fictional interpretations right yeah. almost yeah. allegorical at times potentially yeah
4: the temporal collapse in some of those moments too makes it hard to, yeah. to <laughs> That's I better. wanted
0: to talk about those those moments and because you also mentioned earlier right that the capitalist critique is also buried in those moments, right? Josh Hartman comes looking for your land, for your goods, for your metals, et cetera. And he brings Josh violence Hartman. with him, he brings his <laughs> with him, right? And so those moments are doing a lot of work and they're very strange at times. I also feel as though we can get whatever we want out of them or maybe at times we have to look in the mirror of Josh Hartman's smug face and Mm -hmm. place ourselves in that position. But I I wondered, do those fictional moments have the, the force of critique or are they a way for him to sort of acknowledge the Catholicism, to acknowledge the capitalism, to acknowledge the other forces at play without having to dig into them with the same the same sort of degree of specificity he does in other aspects of the film? I
3: mean, there are two thing, important things about that. I, I would defend those moments, right? Mm-hmm. The first one Me is too. one that he says in the film that he needs to use fiction because there's not enough. Mm-hmm video documentation about some of these events.
0: The silent thing in the past, yeah.
3: Yeah, the second I would say is that the use of fiction in documentary is something that has been done in the, in the Latin American documentary of the 60s, particularly in Cuba. The, the paradigmatic film here is a 1976, 77 film by the Afro-Cuban filmmaker Sara Gomez, who, who was a great director of her time, who died very young. But the film De Cierta Manera is a is a documentary about bringing people into the revolution, revolutionary fold. And at the same time, it has a a, a, a romantic fiction film built within the documentary. And he, she inserts the fictional plot in between the real characters. And you see some of that happening, for instance, in Alambrista, the film about undocumented farm workers by Robert Young. You see some of that recently, even in Nomadland, right? The the Francis McDormand has this fictional character surrounded by the real characters that are living in these conditions. I I, I don't even think it's that remarkable because, I mean, it it becomes remarkable because he really inserts a thesis fiction film into the documentary by doing this. I would be curious, though, to hear you guys about the, the embodiment of all colonialists in Josh Hartnett. Well,
4: it's the it's the dissonance. <laughs> there's there's something about the dissonance. Like I feel like the embodiment of all colonialists in, in Josh Hartnett is there's there's something that's funny about it but there's also like the smugness and it just but i you know the thing that's also super interesting to me here is 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 how temporal collapse happens in the moment that he's there right so like he's washing himself off in the river in what's supposed to be like a 19th century moment and then a caravan
2: of he's the indigenous pride parade
4: yeah or is it like a stop the pipeline protest that 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 is kind of rolling across the river, right? The fictional stuff does very much everything that Nacho is saying, but there's something about how time collapses and how time breaks apart that does all of the things that temporal collapse does. It's like, it's about the continuity of the history. It's about the connections between this particular historical moment and this present day one. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting. Like I think about how, you know, as Andy notes, he does the Werner Herzog stuff where he does the editorializing narration, but then he also has these moments Moments that open up for the watcher to 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 make sense of, and doesn't give us anything in those moments to 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 interpret. Like to just sort of sit with the dissonance and the confusion without the aid of 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 our you know omniscient narrator.
2: It's true. I mean, and so, you know, like the technique is the blending of fiction documentary. I mean, it's like already in Memories of Underdevelopment, right? Um, mm-hmm. Would be another kind of like Cuban example. And I think the signature move here for Peck really is that kind of temporal collapse, you know, so like that, the moment when he's bathing in the stream that you mentioned, the moment when he's in the Congo dreaming about riding a motorcycle. I like these moments because I think like at least part of what they're doing is, you know, like the point that, you know, Jeffrey Insko, among others, has been making Jeffrey writing about kind of like 19th century abolition movements, using them to kind of like push against the historicism that a lot of scholars deeply absorbed, you know, in their training and careers, this idea of historical distance to sort of say, no, like the past isn't the past, especially when we think about impulses like revolution, the reminder that these are not things that are kind of safely located in the past.
0: Hopefully you can help me figure out whether this holds up. Maggie Hennefeld would brought up something. The way the film uses the evidence of atrocity is in some ways, I think, liberational, right? That there is a, a hesitance to deal in scenes of subjection. That when those scenes are used, they are often in the fictional form, right? That the violence is enacted through the acting, right, and through this allegorical figure of Josh Hartnett, who is almost always the one doing the violence. Even in that final scene, he murders somebody for guns, and then he is surrounded by allies who he, we presume are going to murder him, and then he wakes up looking down the barrel of the gun. We have these two simultaneous moments where we presume he's about to be killed, but we don't actually see the killing in either case. But every time he kills somebody, we see it. The film is using fiction to show the violence so as not to dwell in the evidence of atrocity uh, it, that is so often in our depictions of genocide of the Holocaust. Putting those into the allegorical or into the fictional frame allows the the, uh, the more conventional documentary uh, forms not to have to do the work of the almost pornography of the torture that is oftentimes associated with documentaries.
3: The documentary form is very alignable to a contemporary form of politics that that has two goals, depending where you're standing, right? One of the goals is the bear witness, right? Which comes from, in Latin America, we see this in the post-dictatorial societies or we see it in post-apartheid, right? Sort of documenting, and it comes from the Holocaust in part, documenting what happened because we need to know, we need to keep an archive, we need to bear witness. And the second one is sort of the identity slash representation paradigm where you centralize marginalized voices, say create a record of the the history that have been silenced and so on. And obviously both of these exist in this documentary. Now, the third cinema tradition uh, that I think Peck is aligned with is very adamant that you cannot make film that does not lead to consciousness. Consciousness is the goal of true radical cinematic endeavors. And I think that one of the impasses in our, in our representational politics, and this is when I start firing people about Marvel is the thing that I get, is that the presence of the marginalized in the screen is not a political end in itself. And it is a very insufficient political end. Mm-hmm. We have almost accepted this is the case. I mean, that's what happens when I saw Minari, right? Which is, I mean, I didn't like it, but I mean, it's a, it's a good sentimental film. But it's really about the full validation of the American story and really a whitewash of, of what it actually means to be a migrant in the United States, right? I think that because Raúl Peck is a filmmaker from a position that understands this kind of thing, and evidently you cannot make a documentary about James Baldwin without really understanding the limits of representation as, as the end of politics. Mm-hmm. The realization of the material towards consciousness is really the tone that we have to get from here. Some of this is addressed at, at white viewers. And he's telli- telling the same thing that you can hear George Yancey saying his philosophy, right? You have to stop centering your story and you have to stop being complicit with this. There is an idea that as a as a white viewer or as any kind of viewer that is complicit or, benefic- or benefits from the history of colonialism, you have to become conscious of this so then you can act according to this consciousness. In, in the context of the American mediascape that's what I find refreshing in part because I coming from Latin America I am more aligned to the consciousness liberation narratives of culture mm-hmm. and I have always found it very frustrating the weight that representational politics have in in American liberalism as something that is that actually prevents you from consciousness because it keeps you in your corner. Peck really is great because he could, as a Haitian Mm -hmm. filmmaker, be capitalizing on the idea of playing the role of this marginalized filmmaker that represents the voices of the marginalized in the mainstream. And there is a very great refusal of his work so far to do this. I'm not going to say that he might not do it later because this machine is very seductive, but this could have been the documentary where he does that and he doesn't. That's very telling. Right.
4: I think that's that's also one of the roles of the the home the home videos too, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a complete rejection of that sort of representational narrative. Mm-hmm. It's just like, you know, if you think about Haitians, you're thinking about refugees, you're thinking about people displaced by the earthquake, you're thinking about people who I mean, just 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 all kinds of stereotypes. You're not thinking about cosmopolitan, forgive the phrase, global citizen. Mm-hmm. Who are located in these African and European spaces, doing things like appreciating art and walking around spaces like flaneurs, and you know, just just like a completely different way of imagining even Haitian subjectivity, right? And representing that sort of familial reality.
2: I want to talk about that decentering thing. I mean, I think because that's that's important too. So. Um, Kind of like invoke another documentary in the Toni Morrison pieces I am documentary um you know which which I think is like really good for two reasons like one it focuses on her publishing career but two there's this kind of moment where somebody is talking about her work and kind of talking about its kind of like historical or, or mythological aspirations you know and like the comparison is made like it's it's a kind of version of African-American history That's kind of parallel to Jewish stories of suffering that make up the Bible, right? That make up the Talmud. A kind of great analogy, because then, you know, you realize that if if that's the kind of historical role that's being granted to kind of Morrison's protagonist, then you know, the people who who make them suffer are, you know, like in the position of being, you know, kind of like Philistines or Babylonians, like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. some temporarily powerful empire that gives the world nothing lasting. Mm-hmm. That kind of great decentering moment, I think, you know, like there, there is something about that, like in the logic of, of Peck too, where he's renewing a global black tradition from the 60s of thinking about history as not bound by the history of white empires that, you know, like gets mocked for the most reductive versions of Pan-Africanism, but in fact, you know, was trying to kind of like think through what history would look like without Europe centered. And so you know here it is it is very much the case, right? The way that Europe and its colonies function historically in the film are you know like as a problem that you know people have Mm -hmm. to overcome
4: but also just like a monolith like Josh Hartnett here like as you're talking about this the sort of individualized differentiation that some of these um, historical documents media have given us is this individualized exceptional personhood and by using the same figure throughout like it makes a monolith it does what the western gaze does to to the colonized Mm -hmm. right it renders it this singular undifferentiated figure across histories in a way that kind of subverts that lens?
3: And, and that inversion also applies to the figure of Peck himself in a different way.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And one of the, the, the debates I always have with colleagues is that I spend a lot of time focusing as a Mexicanist on showing people in the United States intellectual Mexican culture. And a pushback I often get is that that is an elitist thing to do because it erases indigenous voices, or you know, it I should really be talking more about Afro-descendant voices. But if you if you sit down and think about it, one of the significant limits in representation that we have of these kinds of stories is that you cannot imagine not your individuals but the global North thinking subject anything that is not subalternative. I don't think that showing another documentary about the suffering of the colonized subject is really going to have the same impact. Mm -hmm. What I was thinking when I saw the first episode was, how many people know that the intellectual elites of a place like Haiti were deployed by the UN in the governance of a former colony because they didn't think the Europeans were actually qualified to do something like this? And and what the Belgians did is that after they sacked that place for centuries in the most brutal ways, they just dumped it, right? Mm-hmm. That, that is the, the kind of story that, that carries a political power. It's the same thing that I feel about Los Children's archive since Andy mentioned it, right? I can give mm-hmm. you all kinds of narratives about lower-class Mexicans by marginalized Mexican voices, but the idea of a Mexican woman who grew up in diplomatic circles whose writing refuses to write this kind of testimonial narrative, in part because she doesn't think she should be writing this as a member of the Mexican elite, and that does not correspond with the scripts of immigration that American ethnic fiction imposes onto Mexican writers. That in itself has a, has a critical potential that the testimonial narrative would not have. And I think that the elevation of the colonized subject as a subject of thinking in the in the figure of Peck's narrator, and the representation in Josh Harnett of the colonizer, as sort of this stereotypical brutal colonizer, that inversion has a, a very significant. Yeah.
4: Truyo, like yeah. Truyo is here as like and it's what's interesting is like he has these intellectual figures as his um the, he the, the film is made with them yeah. and the with there is super interesting like what does with mean what does it mean to make a documentary with Truyo who who's you know and, and and these figures who are no longer alive like it's very much invested in this kind of intellectual self presentation as well too right sorry Andy I cut no, you I I
2: just, I just I want to step in here and just. just kind of like, uh, you know, give Josh Hartnett a little bit of props here. I mean, just insofar as I think like Peck is very aptly, you know, like playing to Josh Hartnett's star text. So, you know, like going back to The Virgin Suicides, um, (laughs) you know, a film deeply about kind of like pathological whiteness um, and white supremacy. You know, the key to that film is the fact that when they're at the dance, all of the music is exactly the things that were on the charts before disco took over the charts and, you know, we know the kind of like the the valence of of disco in terms of kind of like a potentially potential expansion of American culture. Right. So anyway, like Josh Hartnott, like from the beginning of his career, like he's played this kind of superficially charming but smug character. And I think, you know, like he's yeah. he's he's got to be aware of that. He's well cast here. It is a good choice on Peck's part. It's a self-aware choice
4: but also like what are you thinking like we talked about this on twitter a little bit too like what are you thinking when you say yes to a role that has you playing a trans historical smug colonialist pos right is this the role of a lifetime like professionally how does this go right no but
3: i mean i i i I, that's what i i think that you can also trace some historical lines right jane fonda did radical Mm -hmm. cinema in the 70s with godard and with goran or or there is this film called, I don't know if you know it, by Louis Mal called Viva Maria, which is this romp of a film about the Mexican Revolution, and the protagonist was Brigitte Bardot.
4: Mm.
3: I mean, it is not unusual <laughs> in the history of cinema to have some of these very. And, Brando I mean, Marlon Brando. Brando in Queimada, right?
4: Yeah, or, that film makes me mad. Yeah, you guys. know, I mean. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it is a bad film. I will give you. It, it, is, a, yeah, it, it is, is a very. It is a very failed film.
4: Andy said some some of that too. That it 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 really is very much about how do you sort of represent this. But I, I think the thing that just like rattled my chains on that one is 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 related here too because of this inversion. Is that the entire thing is staged in order to help this colonial official understand something about what capitalism means in this particular moment the yeah. burning of the places the large scale like just hours of people being shot coming out of cane fields and just it it and, and that it's Marlon Brando <laughs> you know and I, I think
2: um you know I think there's an important point here that has to do again with like the use of Josh hardner you're right like one of the problems with burn is that it's so deeply centers the story of of coming to partial knowledge of Marlon Brando's character right mm-hmm. and it you know it has to do with the way journalism now functions basically to give subjectivity to mass shooters and political monsters right like these are the only people who merit subjectivity in contemporary journalistic stories African-American victims of shootings, you know, like they're no angels. Whereas deep dives into the, like the kind of psychology and subjectivity of white mass shooters, pushing against that is the way that like really Josh Hart has no subjectivity in this. Like he is just yeah. a cipher.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: It is a very well achieved thing because any, any hint of psychological depth of the colonizer would have ruined the the, the documentary yes. in very yes. significant Absolutely. ways. You know, there's another thing that I was thinking, since you mentioned the writing with with Trujillo and Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz and company. Mm -hmm. I I also think that there's a trajectory of political thinking that Mm -hmm. connects the same dots that the documentary does, but it's also something that is not as much in the memory, in the cultural memory of politics. But we can remember that Roxanne Dunbar, for example, besides doing the work that she's the most known for, which is the, the work with Native American, culture. She spent a lot of time in Central America during the civil wars. She wrote the contrast. She she wrote about the mosquito Indians in in Honduras and Nicaragua. That back and forth between the history of of race struggle in the United States and the history of anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism is something that is brought back to light by Raúl Peck. I mean, even if you think about European intellectuals, Agnes Varda, she goes to do Salule Cuban in Cuba, and then she comes to do the documentary about the Black Panthers in the United States, because there is a continuum, mm-hmm. there is mm-hmm. a political continuum that left provincialism in the US has stopped
4: thinking. Yeah,
3: yeah. Any self-considered leftist of the 60s in the US has a global perspective, and this is not, this is not at all the case today, because we're so centered on identity and so centered on specificity as, as the site of liberation, that a story of exterminate all the brutes is not no longer thinkable in many corners of the American left. And if anything, it is salutary that it comes out like this. What I do, unfortunately, wonder is that it has a certain degree of ineffectiveness to it because most of the people who would be solidarious with this story do not really care about having the kind of referential frame that the film provides. I have years of experience in this, but it is very difficult to get even people that are very involved in politics to look beyond their, their immediate intellectual ecosystem.
2: Mm-hmm. This is another thing I think you know that the film... Deeply understands and it gets from its engagement with, with Native American politics. I think about the the anger of Native American activists at Elizabeth Warren kind of claiming identity in, in American terms based on a genetic test. What the film understands is that the politics of Indian removal were not kind of like identity politics. They were actually politics of international engagement. Nice. They were, you know, treaty politics. Yes. Treaties often broken, but it's wary about subjectivity in general and not just around Josh
3: Hartnett. Also Mm -hmm. part of the power of the film is, as a a black filmmaker, he could have just made it about black history in the US, but the centrality of Native Americans and indigenous peoples in the film is a very powerful Mm -hmm. statement Mm -hmm. about the fact that you do not have to center the history that is relevant to yourself whenever you're making a political argument.
4: This is where I like, in in, in as much as I, I I recognize some of the ways in which it is informed by an Afro pessimist frame that it's it's not Afro pessimism because it precisely takes that vantage point as well that doesn't do that kind of centering, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Again, to kind of like refer to the autobiographical elements, it's clear that he has a personal but not a kind of identitarian engagement with the pol- uh, politics of the Holocaust, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, like he has a kind of like deeply personal relationship with those politics, too, because of the time he spent in Berlin. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and and again, like, what he is concerned to do in terms of constructing the counter-narrative is to say, like, this was not an exemplary event. It was, in fact, you know, the continuation of a long-standing thing that, you know, begins in the 1500s, if not earlier.
4: Mm
2: -hmm. I make a lot of my friends
3: angry when I say this, but it really has an implied critique to the politics of centering. If you consider one experience of oppression as the the paradigmatic experience of oppression or the one that you have to focus on for political mobilization, you are missing uh, the point. You're you know, missing
4: a world. As, You're missing a world of what's happening.
3: But also as a Mexican, just even in the provincial uh, political world of the United States, you can see this, right? Because we have a, a, a movement that centers African American lives because of the shootings and then someone shoots Asian people, and then they turn around and look at the the Asian Americans, and then they forget about black people. And then it happens that they murder a Mexican child in Chicago. And that somehow doesn't garner the same kind of energy because everybody's looking elsewhere, right? The larger issue as to why sort of the alignment of mass shootings and police shooting into into a diverse group of victims. That is not thinkable within the the contemporary politics. And you can say that Raúl Peck is making the same argument worldwide. We have people who are very, very focused on the memory of the Holocaust, but really have no engagement with the history of colonialism or people Mm -hmm. who who really talk about the politics of immigration, but not of the politics of race, right? Mm -hmm. He's making inherently a case that it is the whole picture of or nothing. If you do not understand the whole picture, you do not understand your specific causes.
4: And so this is where like a lot of Mbembe's necropolitics also come into play as well. Like the identitarian frame too doesn't allow you to think about how death, how industrialized production of weapons and war is also something that is very implicit in thinking through these things as well. So like that's another kind of of, of ideological frame Mm -hmm. that is propping up here.
0: To what extent is this film in trying to specifically and concretely achieve the break from the limits of its art, as Peck put it, also operating as a form of canon formation, right? You mentioned the active integration of Lindquist and Trio and Dunbar-Ortiz, and through them, I would argue Conrad and Zinn and C.L.R. James, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder to what extent this film's most sort of transparent, at least short-term achievement is going to be like raising the sales of a bunch of-
4: Post-colonial. Otherwise
0: maybe (laughs) obscure academic books, right?
4: Post-colonial theory.
0: And why does he do that work in that way to center this around a set of scholars and a set of texts?
3: That is a a politics of solidarity very much aligned to anyone that grew up in either Mm post-colonial or or, or Mm -hmm. 60s Mm contexts. The act of reading is something that has been lost as a political act. But if you look at university activism worldwide, the, the circle of reading and the cine club were essential parts of the intellectual and political life of of students that contempor that our contemporary students don't have at all. We have really hollowed out the ability to having countercultural uh, intellectual experience in the context of the university for a variety of reasons that would be for a different podcast.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So this film is a
0: syllabus, right? Sure. This film is, yeah. like, self-consciously yeah. It is a syllabus, a syllabus yeah.
3: and not, right? Because it doesn't have the institutional markings right. of the syllabus. And that's why I don't like this uh, thing that my academic friends do whenever they say, okay, so Black Lives Matter as syllabus, right? Because mm-hmm. I, it misunderstands the point of, of reading. It is not that you have to read this and that and the other thing to be knowledgeable about why, but it has to. And, and if you don't read that, then you don't know, right? It is that there's a certain level of chaotic and solidarity reading where you pick out uh, books that exist in the same political plane across different intellectual spectrums, and then you become a, an interlocutor. And the way he frames the authors, like uh, Lynn Best, who's the sort of the one that he brings the title, is you know, this is one of the exceptional people that really sat down and thought about this. And then he said, you know, Howard Sin, but Howard Sin didn't really write about the Native American experience, so. Rock, he, he tasked Roxanne in doing this, and she did it. We are so regulated by institutions in, in, in the <laughs> academic world that the only language that we have for intellectual engagement is the language of the institution, when in fact th- there is more of a case of other forms of reading that are aligned with political conversation that the film is appealing to, but that are definitely not part of the of the intellectual experience as we experience it when we're centered in the university.
2: But there is, you know, there is a point to be made here too, in terms of thinking about like the power of reading at an earlier moment. It's a different media economy. And so, you know, like the power of the samizdat is you get it passed to you through word of mouth, through going to certain kinds of meetings. And, you know, Peck's film is within a streaming economy, right, where, again, like, knowledge is not the problem, like, there's too much material, you know, it's not so much like, here's the the rare book that you'll never find if I don't tell you about it, it's about, you know, like, here's a surplus of material, and I have to kind of, like, help you select from it to kind of like tell you what the limits of Howard Zinn are. And and there I would say, you know, like the syllabus is not a terrible analogy because, you know, a syllabus is, is of course, all of the debates about, you know, the canon wars and everything. It's just like, I mean, the, the basic fact is, of course, like a syllabus is always a canon.
3: Yeah. I'm still, a, I'm a, I'm still a skeptical, but you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it strikes me as we have this conversation as a little bit counterintuitive then to have Heart of Darkness so central part of darkness this text that has been hyper canonized which has obviously been you know critiqued for a wide variety of you know failings mm-hmm. to then be re-centered in many ways by this film including in the very end right that all of the processes of colonization become analogous to Heart of Darkness in Peck's language.
2: You know, I mean, that is an interesting point, right? And so like we know Heart of Darkness becomes Apocalypse Now and then Apocalypse Now becomes a favorite film of people in the military, right? Like it's a kind Mm -hmm. of like coming of age ritual in the military to watch Apocalypse Now, right? The way in which those things kind of like lose their critical edge. I would say that like part of what Peck is doing with Heart of Darkness, What's important for him or one of the things that's important to him about Heart of Darkness is it's a literal telling of what happened under Leopold. Mm. That, you know, he wants to make it clear that this book was not limited to a kind of form of mythologizing storytelling, Mm -hmm. but that it was, you know, in fact, a deeply documentary book Mm -hmm. in some ways.
3: But there's also a theme in the film that we haven't really addressed. There's a problem of thinkability Mm -hmm. in the film. The film Is constructed around the history of thinkability of these issues and is putting forward a case about changing the terms of the things that we can think about and the ways in which we think them. Heart of Darkness is as much a work at its time as a documentary like this in HBO is out of this time, right? Which is that Mm -hmm. you take a medium that is imperfect to tell the story, that has grown against the ability of telling the story, and then make it the site of thinking about this kind of Mm -hmm. history. That is is Joseph Conrad's real achievement, is that he -hmm. extends the borders of what is thinkable in the context of the modern novel.
4: It's also like constructing a genealogy of how things are thinkable, right? Or how we have thought about things through various media. So if like Conrad is a novella moment, Apocalypse Now is the filmic moment, and the thinkability moves across media here, and what media in each contemporary moment is invested with the capability of understanding a specific moment of global history.
3: Exactly. And that is also in relation to our deployment of the media Mm -hmm that is undermining of thinkability, from the yes. from the musical at yes. the beginning to the documentaries mm-hmm. of Lenny Riefenstahl, right? Yes, absolutely. What can you think from is a, a, an inherent question of, of this documentary.
2: I mean, and it's mm-hmm. it's kind of like raised by, right, the everybody knows thematics. Mm-hmm. The documentary is in some ways like deeply engaged with this. Like I think about the moment where he's talking about the Holocaust and you have the image of the lime pits, talks about how for him like this is a recurring image and then you see the lime pits from other genocides including Rwanda and the real danger there right is like it just becomes a kind of thing like genocides happen it becomes precisely unthinkable through that repetition and and then the task is to kind of like re-engage your ability to kind of like see the horror in things that people just take for granted.
3: Yeah there's a, there's a museum in Mexico City it, 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 it is a holocaust museum in its origins but in Mexico there are counterweights to to Israeli politics because we have a very large Syrian and Lebanese community. And the way this was conceptualized instead, the the permanent collection of the museum is a history of what the museum narrates as the four largest genocides of the 20th century. So it has the Holocaust, but it also has the Cambodian genocide, the Rwandan genocide, and the Guatemalan genocide. The four of them curated under the museum paradigms of the Holocaust museums worldwide. And then the second part of the, of the museum that I think is very valuable, temporary exhibits, other histories of genocide. So one that was very good was the history of the killing of Chinese citizens during the Mexican Revolution. And histories of a struggle against intolerance and, and persecution. And, and, and when I was watching the film, I think that's, that's the same model. It's a model of centering. So you don't just tell the story of the exceptional story, but you connect the dots. But also Mm -hmm. there is something about the narration of parallels that runs the risk of trivialization that Andy was putting forward. But it also really makes a sense of its normalcy. There's a political point because you can know, he says very starkly, right? We think that it just stopped with, it began to stop with Hitler, right? But that is not the case. And and it hurts politics and the fight against this to really think that, that the Nazis were such an exceptional
2: thought about this like while I was kind of like watching the documentary, like I thought about like actually having visited the killing fields in Cambodia, you know, which are the best possible memorialization of an event like that because it's really kind of just a field. And occasionally as you walk around, you know, there are like human bones sticking out of the ground. And so it's like deeply normal and yet deeply discomforting. It doesn't actually depend at all on humanizing anybody. It's not about finding exceptional instances. It's really just like the shocking nature of walking around and occasionally seeing human bones. To think back through Heart of Darkness and think about the end of Heart of Darkness and the horror, the horror, right? Like part of the project there is to actually feel that horror and not feel this as just kind of business as usual.
0: The the aesthetic experience of the film is very interesting to me because there are moments where it seems to require a lot of work from the audience. And then there are other moments where it feels like it is kind of easy, right? It's kind of building this argument, this narrative in a way that's very transparent and almost making it too easy. Well, I,
2: you know, I like there was a moment like I don't know if Sherry remembers this, but there was a moment where she kind of like audibly gasped. And it was during the scene where like you just saw the parade of U.S. military helicopters all named after Native American tribes
4: yeah um, it actually it wasn't even just a gasp. it was yeah. scale here is was super important. I'm a post colonialist by training like I know that genocide is real and genocide is a significant part of settler colonialism that is a significant part of our modern reality. like I know this, but there was something about the visualizations mm-hmm. right, so like all of the helicopters, the technology across time, like all of these different aircraft. The transformation of the technologies for aircrafts, war aircrafts, giving the missions, the Native American naming, seeing what genocide looked like in terms of a mapped Mm -hmm. perspective, like how Native nations existed and then just were completely disappeared. I think this is what breaking up the media that constitutes this film allows to happen. Like, the risk of the repetition of particular kinds of images becoming mundane or, you know, you, you become desensitized to them. If you shift the way that you visualize them and constantly shift the way that you're presenting them cinematographically, it disrupts that tendency. Mm-hmm. The, the repetition is there, but it's a repetition that occurs visually in different styles that it constantly unsettles you.
3: But there's another thing important in this regard, something that he probably knows when he's doing this. Is that he has to address this kind of documentary to, to an audience that is very media illiterate. Mm-hmm. I see it because I'm teaching the film and revolution class, which are films that are very much outside of the old experience of my students as viewers. The, the way in which we have all of this media available to us, and yet education in media is narrow because of the way in which certain forms of production occupy so much space. Terminal debris is gesturing towards breaking through that wall of media. I mean, one thing that I always find frustrating is, you know, I see all of my friends, maybe you Andy and Sherry too, (laughs) analyzing the half-baked shows of Netflix which are, you know, I mean, that obviously produced like almost in a sweatshop model, right? And very quickly, you know, they, they have three good episodes and then they collapse, right? Because it's about getting you hooked rather than actually delivering your quality. And people start analyzing so much of them, but at the same time, it's very few works that actually get this kind of an attention. There's educated people that I know that don't even know which are the platforms where you stream global cinema, uh, so, so that, that narrowness yeah. is one of the enemies of yeah. a documentary like this because some of the, yeah. these encounters you will have as a viewer of this is because you're not able to watch mm-hmm. that kind of stuff because the, the media ecosystem is paradoxically very wide and, and very, very narrow at the same time.
4: Our movie watching experiment is something that has impacted significantly how i've been able to to, to read exterminate all the brutes
0: mm-hmm.
4: we watch broadly geographically historically whenever nacho sees us getting into a rut he's just like hey hey k- watch this one stop." <laughs> <you're right." laughs> which is really which has been really great and i think that sort of that sort of media literacy not just in terms of fictional films but also documentary is 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 a thing that opened this up in in a really interesting way in terms of film history in terms of the way that filmmakers have approached the work of revolutionary filmmaking i share some of nacho's concerns a little bit too that maybe if you have not looked as widely, you may not necessarily see as many of, of the ways that this film is participating in like larger trajectories and conversations about thinking, about representation, about thinking about thinking, about thinking about ideology, about thinking about history and colonization. And it may seem exceptional in a way yeah. that it actually isn't.
3: Exactly, and I think that if anything, Having such an exceptional product in the mainstream media ecosystem, mm-hmm. it really can become and should be deployed as an invitation for people to watch stuff more widely. Mm-hmm. Even though all my complaints I do have an optimist strain, where and and I and and, and somewhere <laughs> <laughs> and and out of your comment, uh, Matt, that people are going to start going to read, read you and everything. I also think that there is an opportunity for people to look at media mm-hmm. that is doing this kind of work, which is available. I mean, you just have to subscribe yourself to Movie, movie. and the Creative Channel to get like a pile of mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that they're not visible. Yeah, because uh, the the dominant platforms, which are the worst ones. They limit the field of vision that we have about the actual
0: media that we can
3: approach and consume.
0: That was Ignacio Sanchez Prado, Sherry Marie Harrison, and Andrew Hoborek. This has been an episode of The American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies. For more about the conversation today, please visit Mark Twain Studies. backslash exterminate I also encourage you to check out The Sherry Show hosted by today's guest Sherry Marie Harrison thanks for listening